This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're back with you again to talk about movies. Hope you're ready. <laughs> so yeah, dude, what's up, man? Not much. How's your week going? It's okay. Um, I've been thinking a little bit more about like rejoining a gym. Ooh, ooh. I know. Okay, we went from eyebrows to <laughs> hair to gym. You are back, baby. <laughs> I'm not fully back because I'm like still terrified to go into buildings with other people. <laughs> but, you know, this is the thing. I mean, like, you know, obviously, like, I have not fucking exercised in over a year, like in any kind of major way. And if you want to get down to brass tacks, I actually haven't exercised. I'm not, I have not been back to my full form since I went into the hospital. And that was about two years ago. So for the past two years, you know, I've been really struggling um, you know, the first year after the surgeries and stuff, like I was, um, you know, kind of going back and doing things here and there. I wasn't doing my fucking like two a days, five days a week type of shit that I was doing before. Um, I don't even know what a two a day is. That's how much I haven't been to a gym. <laughs> it's basically when you work out twice in a day. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> that was almost a spit take because I was taking a sip of my tea. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Why? Tell me. Well, because for me, it was like, oh, I would go in the morning to either go to my personal trainer and we would do like weights. And then I would have like the dance class later on in the evening. Oh, Or, you know, sometimes it's like people do like, yeah, they'll do like the strength training and the cardio or the cardio and a yoga. And you're just like doing it twice in a day. But, you know, sometimes it's like a morning and an evening. I mean, if you're it's really only applies to athletes because athletes work out like multiple times a day, almost every day. But then like stupid idiot people at the gym have adopted the language. And now they're like, oh, I do some two a days. I'm like, you're not a football player, but also now I'm saying it. So I can't really judge you. (laughs) You're like, I've been here four times today. So suck it. (laughs) No, but it's really like, yeah, I have not been back um, into that level of insanity um in a long time but then like pandemic style man it was like i think it was really just sort of like a excuse to really just not do shit (laughs) so i was kind of enjoying it i was like oh man this is awesome i don't have to like wake up early on a saturday and like go out and like do all this crap that i don't want to do i don't have to like you know exert myself and like wash a bunch of workout clothes this is awesome um but now i've realized that um I need to go back. I need to get back into physical activity just for my sake. Well, this is a thing that you've always told me, which is why I can understand you wanting to go back to a gym because you have always told me that working out for you is more about your mental health and keeping yourself like, you know, focused. And it helps with a lot of stuff that's not just physical. Absolutely. Um, It's not vanity whatsoever. Trust me. It's really more about... um, 
you know, my physicality, like being able to like be strong enough to like, you know, fucking do things. And I, the feeling that gives me, it makes me feel very good to like, to be strong, but also it's really, really about, um, mental health and just sort of not, I notice that when I don't work out, I have a lot more anxiety and I really think that the exercise has really combat that over the years. Cause there was a point, I think many, many years ago where I really, this is actually the moment that I felt like I needed to start going and into a workout program and start working out more is that I was having like lots and lots of anxiety. And I uh, went to my doctor and, you know, was they, she was giving me a lot of options for medicine and everything. And she was just like, well, first of all, do you want to like maybe try to change your diet and exercise and see if that does anything for you? And I was like, well, good. OK, yeah, sure. And it, I found that it just was really the thing for me, you know? Yeah. And I'm not begrudging medicine, obviously, never, ever. Um, but for me personally, like the first option of just like walking and running and doing things that, like active was helpful for me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I have noticed like during the pandemic and I know it's been even more stressful, but it's just not I've just not been doing it. I think I'm definitely a social exerciser. Is that a, is that a, yeah. word? a social exerciser? What is that? <laughs> I like to go out in the world and cast demons out of people. That's what I think when I hear social exerciser. Exactly. But it makes total sense. It makes total sense. And I think that it's um, I wish that someone in my life in terms of my mental health had recommended that I work out because now I'm just like, fuck it, I'm too far gone, which I know isn't true. (laughs) I know it's not true, but I own I own a treadmill. It's not as bad as like there are clothes on it, but I might hop on that thing once a week while I'm watching a TV show on my iPad and I that thing does not even get close to one mile per hour. I am meandering at best in my own home. I know. Listen, I felt so guilty. So uh, there's an exercise bike in my parents' house. And uh, basically they were like, you can use it anytime you want to. We'll pull it out. This is for you. It's in the middle of the room. You can literally not miss it. Um, it's, not a, it's not a fancy <laughs> Peloton, but it's like, you know, just sort of like one of those old school um, exercise bikes. And, yeah. Um, the cats sleep next to it. And that's literally all they, all, all the action it gets is that there's two cats <laughs> sleeping next to the pedals and there's cat hair all over the floor around the bike. Yeah. I mean, that's off limits, but I have, I've only got on the bike like maybe two or three times. And well, cause if now, if you get on that bike, you're disrupting two animals days. <laughs> yes. That doesn't feel good for your mental health. We are like, fuck, these cats are now like glaring at me and scratching at my ankle because I'm 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 moving their house like I'm moving their nap pad. <laughs> exactly. I don't feel good. Exactly. No, I, well, I, I fully think that it's a great idea. I know a lot of gyms, too, are doing like outdoor stuff and, you know, still playing it safe. And it's I think it's good to get back to what makes you feel good if, as as long as you can. I think it's totally fine. Yes, I will explore my options and I will update you as soon as I figure it out. But I uh, in the meantime, I'm driving past these gyms and I'm just sort of like, hmm. Am I that person again? The, pa- yeah. the the pandemic has really stripped me of my identity. I don't know who the fuck I am anymore. And I want you to be I want you to crack that Bob Seger t-shirt out of storage. <laughs> I want you to march in that gym and be three times the gym person you were. Two a days every day. Everyone knows your name. The bodybuilders are like, damn, Millie. Like, I want that kind of action for you in this gym. Plus, I selfishly just want to know what's going on inside of Florida gym. 
<laughs> Tell me about the is? hairstyles, the clothes, everything. There's a character in my movie today that wears yes. no shirt. That's yes. what's happening in the that is the chips. First thing that's spring to mind. <laughs> and I hope it's true. That for you would be an incredible opportunity. You're gonna have you're gonna have so many friends on the back of this if you go back to a gym. Like that's what I'm envisioning is like that is who's there, and you are gonna be friends with everybody. It's gonna be great. They're all hungry enough to chew the crotch out of a rag doll. That's all I know. Oh, my goodness. Well, I have nothing going on in my week that I can talk about um, because that's just my life, guys. I do a lot of <laughs> shit I can't talk about. Um, but this mailbag did make me think of something that I do want to talk about. Mm. Um, so we have an email that begins. Hi, Millie and Danielle. First off, thank you for being hilarious and keeping me entertained as I work through a series of spreadsheets that are slowly trying to cause my brain to atrophy. I was listening to the discussion about Wonder Boys and Millie's extremely accurate description of what it is like to be in a writing class when, like a knife to my heart, Danielle says that she has never taken a writing class. Danielle, did you block out crossing borders, women writing their lives in our senior year at URI? <laughs> the memoir writing class that haunts me to this day so i understand if it has been erased anyway i hope you're well and as always you're so funny and talented mel first off mel hello oh my goodness i miss you so much i miss nelly we had i was a women's studies and english literature major when i went back to school and mel and i graduated in the same class and guess what I 100% blocked out that class. And not only that, I blocked out another. It made me think of another writing class I took in college. It was a travel writing class that I took for my travel requirement. Oh, my God. I've taken two writing classes in my life and I forgot both of them. And here's what it brought me to think about that I wanted to talk to you about. Because I'm surprised that Melanie even remembered the name of the class. Yes. Is there anything about college that is memorable that is not a social thing? Like, do you remember anything about college that's like, this is the name of this course I took. This is the grade I got. I don't remember. I was in college for way too long to forget all of it. And yet here I am. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't tell you. the. Well, maybe. Well, now I'm thinking that's grad school, not undergrad. Uh huh. Um, hmm. I could tell you, I definitely know a couple of really memorable classes that I took, like theme wise, but mm. I can't remember the names, I don't think. Yeah. I would definitely remember if it was something evocative, like crossing borders, you know, whatever it was. You don't even remember it. I just said it five I seconds know. ago. <laughs> this is what my, I mean. My brain is atrophied <laughs> as well. But it's true. Like I'm I'm genuinely friends with some of my professors from undergrad now. And like we follow each other on Instagram. They taught me incredible courses. I remember what we read in those courses. I remember the books and the things we wrote about. I do not remember the course name. I could not tell you what grade I got. I could not tell you anything specifically about the class, which is a weird like it's a weird gap to have in your brain. And I'm just wondering why that happens. Do you remember? OK, so your women's studies. Yeah. Do you remember unpacking the invisible knapsack? Oh, snap! <laughs> Not only do I remember learning it, I remember four years later teaching it. Wow. Wow. That's like one of my Women's Studies 101 coursework requirements. Like, I remember that. That's a name I remember. 
That is, there's, that's the thing. I remember everything I read. Yeah. I remember like so many important authors and concepts I was introduced to. Names of classes, gone. Wow. Gone. But I love how Mel just like took you to task on this shit. She was like, actually, you were in a writing class. Yeah. And you know what? Double down, Mel. You were right twice because I took two classes that I I went to my bookshelves after I saw this email. I went to my bookshelves and I'm like, I did take that class. And I pulled out the book that we read in that class. And then right next to it was travel writing, blankety blank blank book. And I was like, fuck, I took two. I took two writing classes. (laughs) I am deeply fascinated on a travel writing class. What like what is that? What is the? Can I get the syllabus on that? Yeah. I'll bust out the hard drive and send you the syllabus. What I remember of it is, and it was actually pretty cool because, you know, again, we're poor college students. We couldn't actually go anywhere. But I remember an exercise where we had to go to town and write about the things that we saw. But we we had a very specific way to do it. So the professor kind of encouraged us to write down what we saw, but also what we smelled, what we um, touched like noticing how to describe people. And it was almost like that. You know, you know that Linda Barry, Linda Barry has a bunch of great books oh and God, she has I a great Tumblr. She's incredible. And she has um, a book about diary writing and about, you know, how to keep a diary. And she does kind of a four, a four square sort of thing where she like has four squares and writes down, you know, this is what I saw. This is what I touched. This is what I smelled. This is what I ate. Um, things like that. And that's kind of the style of the travel writing. Where it's like you get more to write. It's basically a class that encouraged me to notice the details of things. And so that was useful. It wasn't useful for me remembering the detail of having taken the course. (laughs) And I wonder if part of it is just that like college was a stressful experience. Like you're just going and going and going and hoping like, do I have the right? Well, if you're doing it like I did school, I'm like, do I have the right credits? Do I have enough credits? Am I going to graduate? Am I meeting all my requirements? Like I was just constantly stressed about like, could I actually get this degree and get out of here? And so it's a lot to keep in mind. Plus money, like, oh my God, I was like, do I need to take out a student loan just to live? You know, I I was working, like, it's a stressful time. And it's not, you know, it's not like the heaviest thing you can do, but it was stressful enough that I think, you know, I don't remember things in my stress moments. Like that is a a big trigger for me. And when I'm depressed or stressed, I don't remember much. And I was both throughout college. So Well, also just like so much of college um, was just sort of like fulfilling these requirements. I will say in film school, like I definitely remember the class that I took on The Shining, which I talk about Mm -hmm. a lot. I actually took that in grad school, but then I had an undergrad class that was all about vampire movies. And I feel like I talked about that. I talked about that in the Ganjin Hess episode that we did. Right. So those type of um, the classes that are about like one thing or one person or one, you know, it, that is easy to remember. The thing I really want to say about Mel's email that got me that I just want to try to convey is that if you are a person who is currently in college, um, has recently graduated college, and you're not quite sure what it's all about. You're not quite sure if it was worthwhile. The things that are worthwhile about college are not going to be immediately evident to you sometimes. And if you forget the courses as soon as you're done with them, it's okay. Take what you need from it. Be nice to yourself. It's going to be okay. Are you cool with the idea that you were a professor and there are students out there who completely forgot about you and your classes? Oh, I hope they forgot about my classes. (laughs) Uh, so I, I taught a 
a women's studies 101 class during a summer course. Um, and it was around the time that the Miley Cyrus song and video We Can't Stop came out and also around the time Robin Thicke's song came out, Blurred Lines. Mm-hmm. And remember when Blurred Lines came out and it had the video where the models were topless and then there was one where they were clothed. Yes. So I had the class dissect these videos for like, you know, gender representations and kind of that's how I that's how I rolled, man. I was like Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds. <laughs> I was like, let's get the let's hit the kids where they live. So let's take <laughs> this theory and this, you know, this fucking academic shit and mix it with some modern shit. So I hope they forgot that. Like, I'm sorry if you took that class also. But like, that's what I was doing at that point. Like, hey, what do you think about this? And um it was fun and I was I was good at it. I like being being a little teacher. Um, but yeah, please forget everything I ever told you. Even if you're just a friend of mine and we've had conversations, just forget everything I say, please. <laughs> as soon as I say it, it's out of my mind. Let it be out of yours as well. Even this podcast. I'm like, I don't remember what I even said two episodes ago, let alone the first episode. Hell, I forgot how we even began this episode yeah. that we're doing right now. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, the one that we're doing right now. Where do we start? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Let's get into these movies while we still have a chance. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right, Danielle. So guess what? We have another recurring theme this week. Dope. Yeah. So we've actually done this theme before. We're bringing it back. What is the theme? This theme is changing female friendships. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And let me just tell you, I don't like to pick favorites amongst all of our children, but this episode, the first one that we did with um, Walking and Talking and Me Without You is one of my absolute favorites personally. Mm -hmm. And we got such an amazing response out of it. I think it was like the second or third episode we did. So if you're curious. It's called Foot Cigarettes. (laughs) Oh, it is called. It's called Foot Cigarettes. That's that's right. Um, But if you are curious about what we talked about before, like go back and listen to that episode. But um, I'm excited we're bringing it back because, man, like we said in the in the original one, there's so many movies about uh, female friendship. And, you know, we were basically like, oh, my God, we only have to pick two or we only can pick two. And then we were like, oh, wait a minute, we can do this again and again and again and talk about all of them. So let's do it. We can have a spinoff podcast called Changing Female Friendships. (laughs) I would love to do that, actually. Don't don't tempt me. But that's why we picked it again, because there there are lots of of films that sprang to mind. And I think it's also just an interesting topic for us, because I think that, you know, the way we've talked about it in the past and that foot cigarettes episode, but also just the way we talk about it with each other. It's like it's fascinating to think about how our friendships evolve and change at different stages of our lives. Yeah. And so I think both of our movies are kind of centered around that kind of early 20s experience of friendship. Um, but they have wildly different approaches to to how those friendships go. And I think it's it's really cool. It's very interesting to think about um, how your own friendships evolve over time. And now that I'm, you know, 43 and, you know, still friends with people that I have been friends with for 30 years or more at this point, mm-hmm. um, we've been through some shit. Good and bad. Like, Mm -hmm. we've been through some shit together, and it feels like a good thing to honor. Like, I know that um, there's a book by Aminatou So and Anne Friedman called Big Friendship, and the whole book talks about how 
you know, the, the importance of friendships as a primary relationship in your life. And it's one of the first things I've read that ever really elucidated kind of what that concept was. Um, but it's true. It's very my, my friendships are incredibly important to my life. So to think about how they change is just something that is evocative to me. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting about these two movies that we picked this time around is that and I don't think that this was the case for the last two is that these movies feature situations where the friends are either living together or going to live together mm-hmm. uh, at some point in the film. And so and that's obviously like a whole other component to friendship is when you become roommates and you start living in each other's space. And um and that's just really interesting to me. That just adds a new kind of component to the conversation. Um, and also these two movies are so fucking good. I am sorry. I might get emotional about them. I love them all. I've seen a million changing female friendship movies and I've rocked them all. <laughs> well, good. I love them. Speaking of female friendships, I got your book today that you sent me. Oh, the, the one. I actually got it like last week but it sat in my foyer with my packages that i haven't opened yet for a week but millie sent me a book called nothing but a good time and it is heavier than the bible and it's all about 80s rock and roll (laughs) and that's the kind of female friendship changes i'm looking for Thank you so much for for that book. I have I have plans for the week now. Well, good. I know I I knew you would understand and enjoy the the source material. So I'm I'm glad that we're now going to have this experience of reading this hilarious book together. Oh yeah, get ready for some some screenshots and some text yeah, for sure. Exactly <laughs> for sure. But let's let's talk about the movies first. I think that that my my film is um, easily one of my top ten favorites. Yeah. And it has been from the first time I saw it. Yeah. So good. All right. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. My film for the theme of changing female friendships was released in 1994, written and directed by PJ Hogan. And the movie is Muriel's Wedding. You are wicked. Well, stick with me because I'm wicked too. Rhonda changed my life. She would. Oh, by the way, I'm not alone. I'm with Muriel. This movie is so unique. It's so good. Uh, PJ Hogan has also directed things like My Best Friend's Wedding, Confessions of a Shopaholic. Like he's had a good career. Um, I make it sound like he's gone. Like <laughs> he's still alive. Like he had a good run. Good luck, PJ Hogan. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's still with us. It's fine. Um, but this film was just incendiary from the moment my eye it blazed across my eyes it's just so good so this is a film that stars two actresses that would go on to be very heavy hitters tony collette and rachel griffiths who was the dance maven of the school in step up she was the Jay Jiller. She was the origin of the Jay Jiller. Remember? She was the Jay Jiller. Yes. Never forget the Jay Jiller. Never. Also, too, um, I, you know how like they have, they, there was a, t- a Tumblr back in the day called like Cast This Family. And it was basically yes. like taking, okay, if Rachel Griffiths in this movie and Juliette Lewis from the 90s didn't appear in a movie together as sisters, 
y'all missed an opportunity. That's all I have to say. Missed it. Missed it. I completely agree. So we've got these incredible actors in this film. I'm going to give you a synopsis. It's a little bit longer than some of the synopsis I usually give. Synopsi? Synopsos. <laughs> Synopses? <laughs> Are you gonna, but I have a feeling you will say all hell will break loose. Oh, at least once. I will absolutely say all <laughs> hell breaks loose because you know it does. You've seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> so this this movie is about Muriel Heslop, played by Tony Collette, who's this jobless, aimless Australian twenty something from a town called Porpoise Spit. <laughs> Incredible name. I actually didn't look up if that was real. That can't be real. I didn't look at up either because I don't want to know. If it's not real, <laughs> let me never know. I think of Australia, where I've never been, but plan to go. Yes. I think of it as the most magical place where towns like this can actually exist. And I don't want to know if it's not real. <laughs> don't tell Unless us. Unless the name of the real town where it was filmed is better than Porpoise Spit. <laughs> if it's like, if the real town name is like fluttering robes can you hear my cat right now a little bit oh yeah carrot he has a lot to say about this movie we've oh been watching God. it all week he's saying he's a big fan sounds delicious <laughs> it sounds like my kind of town <laughs> um but it's this kind of seaside you know small beach beachy town and what we know about muriel heslop is that she is obsessed with two things she's obsessed with the band abba and she's obsessed with weddings mm-hmm. so she has simultaneously photos of weddings ripped from magazines and posters of ABBA just all over her bedroom walls. She lives with her family, her, which includes her horrible father, who's a local kind of low-level politician, um, her vacant mother, which we find out more about her mother as the movie goes on, mm-hmm. um, and a bunch of like layabout siblings, <laughs> including a sister who sits in an armchair smoking all day and the one of the only things she says until the end of the film is, You're terrible, Muriel. You're terrible, Muriel. You're terrible, Muriel. And Muriel's friends also suck. They're like very oh. high school mean girls, especially Tanya, who's like the leader of the pack. And before Muriel gets arrested at Tanya's wedding for stealing the dress she's wearing to the wedding, which is how this movie opens, if you want to know how dope it is, um, she catches one of the bridesmaids and the groom having sex. And when the mean girls kick Muriel out of their club for not being cool enough after the wedding, um, and and then they also tell her that she can't join them on this vacation that they're taking, uh, she takes a job with her dad's mistress, Deirdre, Deirdre, and um, after stealing, she uses these blank checks that her dad approves of her to have in order to build this business, this beauty business because it's kind of like a multi-level marketing sort of business it's kind of like a mary Kay meets scam goddess yeah (laughs) my kind of biz um and after so she uses these checks to basically go on the holiday with her friends or where her friends will be she's not with them she just shows up where they're gonna be yeah and this is where she reconnects with Rhonda, who is played by Rachel Griffiths. Rhonda is a young woman who's also from Porpoise Spit. They kind of knew each other in high school. Muriel was a little bit older. And Rhonda sort of cements their burgeoning friendship by telling Tanya about 
the fact that her husband cheated on her on their wedding day, because Muriel, of course, reveals that to her. That is a badass move to be like, hey, here's my new friend. She's great. You guys suck. P.S. Your husband cheated on you on your wedding day with that lady that right now they're standing next to you that you're on vacation yes, with. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. And then to top that moment off, as if that moment couldn't get any better, they perform Waterloo together. And all hell breaks loose. <laughs> God, exactly. <laughs> so the best revenge is just dancing over your enemies while they fight each other on the floor. We've got to redo that saying because that is the best revenge. Oh, my God. I love this Waterloo performance, too, because they're doing Ugh. they're they're doing, you know, they obviously have the, the ABBA costumes and then they do the thing that was in like all the ABBA videos where they're like turning their heads from yes. the side to side and like looking at each other from like what is it? Perpendicular angles? Like yes. when it's like, oh my God, I loved it so much. It was It's so good. Can I ask you real quick, what are your thoughts on ABBA? Are you a fan? Are you I'm a fan. They're one of those bands that you can't help it. When they come on, you you know all the lyrics. You just instantly get into like moving and dancing. Like they are just a quintessentially upbeat band for me. Oh my God. I love the shit out of them who the hell is the abba hold out at this point like a fucking 55 year old man who listens to like fucking you know rock and roll or something and hates disco or some shit but like honestly like they're the best like every song they is so rule. singable it's so they're so fun they rule and there's actually there's an abba museum in sweden oh my god you I gotta would, look it up listen it's dope are you ready to get on a plane because I am. I'll go to the fucking Abbey Museum right now. I will not go to a gym, but I will get on a plane and go to the Abbey Museum <laughs> yesterday. Put those priorities in line. I will pack 17 masks and four blankets and we're there. I'm there. I don't care if it takes me 15 hours to get. I don't care how long it takes. We're going to the Abbey Museum. That's what we're doing for your new birthday in September. Yes. Exactly. Which I have not forgotten about. We are celebrating your birthday this year again. For real. <laughs> I want to hear Fernando as we're landing in the airport. Uh, Let's do it. Beautiful. And I think that the Abba holdout is the one of the main characters in your movie. That guy. Yes. That guy would be the Abba holdout. <laughs> nice connections. Nice connections. 100% yes. <laughs> but they're having a blast. They're having a blast. And it's so nice to see Muriel kind of go from this place of just trying so desperately to fit in with people that are just so awful to her to finding real and true friendship. And it's a beautiful moment in the movie and it's just so fun. And I just, I love seeing it every time I see it. And it, their, their friendship grows because when Muriel finally goes home, she has stolen up to $12,000 from these blank checks. She's basically wiped her family out. And when she finds out, like her sister's like, you are in trouble. She just turns around, gets back in her cab and leaves. And the next time we see Muriel Heslop, she's changed her name to Mariel and she lives in Sydney with Rhonda. She's working at a video store and just living her best life. It's gorgeous. And I love it. I think, again, like this is one of those situations where, you know, like they're living together. They're working across the street from each other. They have a real rhythm to their friendship. And there are so many levels of changing female friendships in this movie. So first we have her shitty friends. Then she meets Rhonda. And then there's a really big plot turn when Rhonda, who is in the middle of a threesome, 
with two American sailors because she is fun. Um, That whole scene is hilarious. Muriel is having um, a really fun night with this guy, Bryce, who kind of comes to the video store and finally asks her out after kind of stalking her a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he's really sweet and they're having a great time. And he's like ripping her clothes off and she's cracking up. She's having so much fun. And then he rips something a little too hard, breaks a window, like backs into and breaks a window. And then Rhonda's sailors come running out naked and... When Tony Collette laughs in this scene, it is like instant joy to me. Oh, I know. Me too. It's so good. But then Rhonda comes out and she's laughing and then she falls down and she's like, I can't move my legs. Mm. And as it turns out, she is paralyzed because she has a spinal tumor. Um, and when it, you know, they they do surgery and she tries to walk again, but it, the tumor comes back. The cancer comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's wheelchair bound for the rest of the film. And Muriel, who has been a really solid friend up to this point, panics. She panics and she decides eventually to kind of answer a wanted ad. I don't know if that's what you call relationships ads. <laughs> relationship ads. I think they're called personals. Personals. But I call them the want ad. <laughs> yeah, I only know that because my, my movie has a personal ad too. Yeah. Um, hello. Yeah. Crazy. Pew, pew, pew. Connections everywhere. So the want ads for people also known as the personals. Right. Um, Muriel eventually answers one and ends up in an arranged marriage with this South African swimmer um, because he wants citizenship so that he can go to the Olympics. Yeah. So when Rhonda falls ill, the, one of the first ways that Muriel copes is by going to wedding shops and lying. She tries on all these wedding dresses and then lies about how her mother is in the hospital getting surgery done um and the first time it happens the the woman at the store just happens to say you know your mother has to see this and takes a photo so now muriel's going all over the city and i guess sydney is known as the city of brides which i didn't know oh my gosh really I think so. Yeah. And so she's going everywhere and getting these photos taken and she has this huge album filled with them but this is her coping mechanism and it's almost like disassociating from the Mm -hmm. life she has to the life she wants. But she ends up abandoning Rhonda to get married to this dude. And then Rhonda has to move back to Porpoise Spit to live with her mother. So we're also kind of negotiating not just the change in female friendships here, but also just kind of the when yourself takes over or Mm -hmm. when you prioritize yourself over your friend, because there was such a touching scene where in the beginning, when Rhonda was first sick, Um, And, you know, trying to learn how to walk again. And Muriel says, like, I'm never going to leave you. Um, You know, Rhonda, you saved my life. And she says this really sweet thing where she's like, I don't even listen to ABBA anymore because my life is as good as an ABBA song. Oh, yeah. That her life is as good as Dancing Queen. And it's like just so touching that like they have this connection. But she's really going through some hard shit and she's a caretaker for a woman who's going through some hard shit Mm -hmm. so she panics and she leaves and i'm just i want to know what you think about that moment like her leaving was really when i first saw the film and even now when i rewatch it i kind of wonder like what is that reaction all about yeah i mean i think that a big i think that muriel's character is very much in doubt of her abilities and herself at all times. Right. And she's always 
talking, I mean, she's always trying to get a job. It's not working out for her. Her father and her family tell her that they don't, you know, that she doesn't do anything. The brothers and sisters don't do anything and that they're just a bunch of fuck ups. So I think she's obviously internalized that messaging a little bit. Right. Um, so there's a moment, I think, where she feels that she's like, how am I going to take care of somebody? When I'm such a fuck up and I can't, I can't handle responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's maybe part of it. I would, I would, that's kind of what I was thinking when I was watching the movie uh, was that she was just flipped out about the responsibility and just the idea that she was truly going to just like double down on being single or at least living with her friend forever. Cause that I think is also another thing that maybe motivated her. And I will say that is a thing that I might've thought of when I was maybe in my twenties, because in in my twenties, especially, I think there was always this big question of would I get married? A lot of people I know are starting to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what am I doing that might be preventing me from being like everybody else? Right. And so I think there was a moment where she was unsure of whether or not, she wanted to truly live this life where she was basically like, Oh, I'm just going to, it's going to be me and my friend forever in the city. And we're just going to be like cool and fun and awesome. And I'm just going to give up the idea of, of getting married. That's true. And it also, now that you say that, it makes me think that there are probably some, some vestiges of her thinking about her mom. Yeah. Cause her mom was trapped in that, that life. Her mom was trapped in a marriage that was terrible with children who didn't respect her. And I'm sure that even in the back of her head, even though that wasn't really translated throughout most of the film. Um, but I do think it comes through at the end quite a bit yeah. that Muriel was probably afraid of that and afraid of being locked in, in that way. Yeah. But and and it was also too like the goal. I think her goal was that, you know, being married means I'm lovable and means that I'm mm-hmm. special and means that, you know, I'm not this all this other stuff. I'm not irresponsible, fat, ugly, a nuisance, like, you know, all the things that all of her stupid fucking friends from high school were telling her. And then like people in her own family too, don't get it twisted. But it's just that thing where like, yeah, I just think that she just had a moment where she was just sort of like, okay, I don't know what this is going to be. I love my friend, but I also have to like, you know, I have to see this through, see this dream of mine through or something. You right. Know? And then she does, she gets to a point where, you know, she does reach this dream, but it's in a way that gives her the worst life possible. So she mm-hmm. is married. She's married to David, the swimmer, and she's, on the outside, gotten everything she wanted. You know, she's married to this famous rich guy. She's on the cover of magazines, um, but they live in separate rooms and he can barely stand to look at her. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that she's given up so much like real love and affection and connection with Rhonda for this dream that is the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone. It's just a terrible way to live. And she ended up kind of in the marriage that her parents had. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the husband was the superstar and she was kind of a sidekick for supporting his dreams and goals. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's there's some real I mean, this film, I'm definitely not going to ruin the ending of this one because I think that it is so important that you see it if you haven't already. Yes. Um, but this film takes a real turn. Like there's some some real roller coaster moments. But I think there are certain events that really catapult Muriel into reevaluating her life. And it's just a very hopeful and realistic and fun film. There's also a scene where 
Tony Collette is wearing a red glitter dress with like a keyhole boob thing going on. <laughs> she has her hair just like fan sprayed to infinity. <laughs> and that is a look that I will recreate the next time I get to go out with friends. That's the first look I'm wearing when I break quarantine. <laughs> she has so many iconic looks. So many. So many iconic looks in this movie. I, I love it too. I mean, honestly, like it's one of those movies where, you know, nobody understands you like your best friend. Like like all these yeah. people outside of this friendship um, are going to pressure you to be somebody else. But I love you just the way you are and don't change because you're amazing. And it's just that's a that's a great sentiment to watch in a movie like every time i see a movie that has this kind of message at the core i'm like yes i love this movie it makes me so happy <laughs> you got great people in it abba is all over the place like i said and and all the good all the good songs all the good ones yeah but yes watch this movie i this is a film i could watch it again and again and again i can't wait to watch it when i'm like 60 and thinking about how life has gone and how my friendships are and it's a it's a banger. It's a banger of a film. Yeah. And it introduced me and the world to Tony Collette and Rachel Griffiths. What a gift. Yep. I love it. Beautiful. Okie dokie. So my movie for this week for the theme of changing female friendships is a movie from 2001. It was directed by Terry Zwigoff and it's called Ghost World. Sometimes I think I might be going crazy from sexual frustration. You just hate every single guy in the face of the earth. That's not true. I just hate all these extroverted pseudo-bohemian losers you guys up for some reggae tonight all right i'm probably like too passionate about this movie to really talk about it on this podcast but you know what <laughs> here it goes right oh my god when this movie came out i swear to god i mean I, I i always talk about this maybe this is not helpful for anybody but me but i always like to talk about like where i was at when i first saw this movie um, yeah and i saw this movie at the old lafont garden hills theater in atlanta georgia um, beloved by all of the real ATL heads. That, that was like <laughs> aliens. All, the, real aliens all the aliens. Remember Garden Hills? It was like the big art house. And there was a chain, actually. The LaFont Theaters is a really memorable, amazing chain of movie theaters in Atlanta that I think all of them are gone by this point. But Garden Hills was the one. It was in Buckhead. It was in this like, you know, kind of snooty neighborhood. But it was like, you know, you went and saw your art films there. And then you went next door and ate pizza at Fellini's. That's how you do oh, it. Sounds uh, so good. And then there was also a record store that you went to. But anyway, whatever. Uh, now I'm getting this is not about Atlanta. Or is it? <laughs> Secretly? <laughs> Um, but, you know, I saw it the week that it came out and I went back to see it like three or four times by the time it left the theater. I loved it so much <laughs> that when Scarlett Johansson became like a famous movie star, I felt this pang of <laughs> unreasonable bitterness about it. Like I was like, how dare you take Rebecca from Ghost World? And now she's in Marvel movies. Like I was... I mean, listen, it ain't great. I'm just being honest about how I felt. That's great. But this movie was based off of the comic. It was written by Dan Klaus, who I'm also like a big fan of. And it was directed by Terry Zweigoff, who is probably best known for directing the documentary Crumb, um, which is about the comic book artist R. Crumb. Terry Zweigoff and Dan Klaus wrote the screenplay for Ghost World. And honestly... <laughs> You maybe can't pair two better people to do a movie like this, in my opinion. You just really can't. 
I mean, in terms of like style and just content and yeah, I I don't know that you can. I can't even imagine these two not doing this movie. Like if it was like Dan Klaus and like Ridley Scott. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. Someone like it couldn't be anybody but Terry Zweigoff, in my opinion. I don't even know who's close. Here's a pitch. Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Thomas Anderson. Ghost World. (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis has gone full method. (laughs) Listen, PTA is actually, I would, not that he has any intention of remaking Ghost World, but I would like to see him take a crack at it in my wildest dreams. So I'm just saying. But so this movie is about Enid and Rebecca, who are played by Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson. And they are two friends who um, are graduating from high school. And they're basically like the freaks of their school. They are extremely tuned in to like who's phony and who's not phony. Um, They're just smarter than everybody else. They have an appreciation for like old things, forgotten culture they love fellow weirdos and underdogs and they're just they're interpreting the world from this like outsider perspective and they just have this like banter this running commentary throughout the film that's just directed at everyone they come across right and it's just always so biting and spot on i mean they just like read people to filth every moment right and like that to me is just like I mean, I'm just like, oh, there's these two high school girls who are literally just like smarter than everyone around them and they know it and they're very observant and it just really speaks to me. Like, I just really, <laughs> it just when speaks When I first to me. saw the movie, I thought, they're assholes. This is awesome. <laughs> like, it was nice. Because every time we, like, back in the, in 2001, you were seeing teenage girls as, like, either lovesick puppies or somehow they were already assassins. Like, there was no in-between. Right. And so I love seeing just, like, normal girls being assholes. Oh, and there, and, like, again, we, we've talked about this before. This is the fucking Britney Spears in sync era. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've mentioned, like, feminism was kind of, like down a couple of notches you know <laughs> uh, on the cultural ladder and and we and it was just a rough time and so when these two come kicking the door in i'm like holy shit like this is like not mandy moore this is not christine aguilera this is like <laughs> this is what i need right now i need it um and you know i think enid of the two She's really the one, right? Because yeah, she really has no time for normies and the sort of like lame indulgences of normies, quote unquote, like bad pop music and chain restaurants and chain video stores. Like she's just in it is happy to be cloistered in her world of like cool things with her best friend, Rebecca, who's the only person that gets it and gets her. Right. Right. And you can tell this is how they got through high school. And now they're graduated or they're about to graduate and they're just extremely ready to move on. Like they don't want to go to college. They just want to get an apartment together in the city, Mm -hmm. much like in Muriel's wedding. And they're just going to live together forever, presumably. Right. Right. However, Enid finds out that she needs to go to summer school before she can officially graduate. And the thing about Enid is that I feel like out of out of her and Rebecca, she's the one 
I think she is kind of still in that high school mode in many ways. Like, even though she wants to move on and not be around these assholes anymore or whatever, I mean, she is still kind of carrying that resentment from high school. And I don't know if she's like really ready to move on from it. Like she she's making fun of people to their face. She doesn't want to get a job. She just wants to run around town doing like fun, crazy, wild stuff. She wants to terrorize this kid that they both have crushes on who, you know, is Brad Renfro, who works at the convenience store. And she just wants to be how they've always been, like just running around, making fun of everybody. And that's it. And what's strange about that, too, is that it comes with it, it turns into a kind of aimlessness for her that is hard to watch. You know, I think at this, especially at this point in my life, because I I identify with that, like when you don't want to do the thing that everyone's doing or, you know, you have this goal and this dream to move in with your best friend, but you have no idea how you're going to make it happen mm-hmm. in real life. That's a central point of the conflict for her yeah. in this film. And the, the thing that's interesting about Rebecca is that she can sort of manage in the gen pop, if you will. Right. Like she's the mm-hmm. one that starts to kind of wonder if their attitude towards the world is like no longer serving her the way that it used to. Right. Right. Like Rebecca is she's got crushes on guys her age who aren't like cool by their standards whatsoever. Like, you know, jocks and like the dumb guy that's like, Hey, you want to listen to some reggae tonight? Like she's, <laughs> she's kind of moving out of that. She's trying to move out of those kind of like strict parameters of like, who they who they can hang out with and who they should date. And she recognizes that she needs to get a job in order to pay for the apartment that they will live in. And she and because of that, she has to mingle with, quote unquote, normies like all the other people in the world that they have always hated forever. She just can't sit around making fun of everyone all day and being smug about it. And she also has to, like, go and look for the apartments because Enid's not doing it. Yeah. And she needs to go to Crate and Barrel and buy some cups, you know. <laughs> Like all the shit at that world market. Yeah. <laughs> I am, by the way, genuinely drinking my tea out of a mug that I purchased at Pier One in 1995 when I moved out. There we go. Hey, oh, Pier One in 95. It's a good era for Pier One. It's a mug that's the size of a soup bowl, and I fucking love it. <laughs> oh, God. I love it too. God, I miss that shit. Okay. So one day, Eden and Rebecca are like fucking around in the personals. Right. Because, again, like, I don't know how young some of you guys are, but did you realize that people used to put out personal ads in the newspaper? (laughs) We even talked about it in uh, our first episode. That's right. And they come across a misconnection, which is another thing. I don't know if people really do much anymore, is that there used to be like a whole section of Craigslist that was misconnections. Is that still around? Um, I don't know, but it was also like kind of started in the alt weeklies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I used to love reading those, by the way. And I was always like, are they about me? I'm like, what the fuck? How is everybody noticing me and never approaching me? I knew they were never about me because it wasn't like, are you a six foot pale black person with freckles? Like, there's no way to not describe me in a way that I would understand who it was about. So I'm like, this ain't about me. This is about some tiny lady on the goddamn bus. No, but they were always super fucking vague. They were like, you sitting with a coffee and a book. Like, okay, that's like (laughs) literally everybody. Ah, ah, Fuckers. ah. 
Anyway, um, so they're they they're looking at the misconnections in the back of the paper and they see an ad from somebody. And as a joke, they call the number and, you know, they basically tell the person, hey, I'm the lady you're looking for. Like it was something about a contact. Like, I helped you find her contact lens. And she's like and Enid kind of pretends to be her and says, oh, yeah, my contact lens or whatever. Um and they and they kind of cruelly, you know, I have to admit it was cruel. They make a fake date with the guy just to see who turns up. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, they're still in that mode of like they're just like fascinated by weirdos and weird scenarios and like sex shops and danger and that kind of shit, <laughs> which is to me a very, a very high school thing. I was very much into that, too. But it turns out that the guy who shows up is Seymour and he's played by Steve Buscemi. And Seymour is this like nebbish, single, middle-aged record nerd. Yeah. We know the type. And <laughs> some days I wonder if I'm the type. But that's that is for another time. <laughs> but for Enid in particular, right? Seymour is fascinating to her. And she and Rebecca show up um to his yard sale the next day after they played this like shitty joke on him um and you know basically he's selling his fucking 78s his old blue 78s and 45s and she and she interacts with him and then they kind of develop a friendship uh even though he's much older than her and yeah and in time he kind of becomes her like outsider hero and you know the funny thing is is that he kind of keeps telling her like throughout the movie like hey listen I am your future. You do not want to be me. Trust me on this. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, I, you know, he's lonely and he wants love, but he knows he's a nerd and he cannot help it. And he doesn't want to change it. He doesn't want to change it, no. which respect. He's like, I'm wearing my lumbar support. I'm getting yeah. my psoriasis mail. This is who I am. I can't help it. Right. But I will say the thing that they do connect with is that, you know, he, they both have like zero tolerance for like any kind of mass marketed pop culture crap. And they have that shared disgust with sort of lame people and like, you know, yeah, whatever's going on in the world. That's not old things and old music and whatnot. Um, But yeah, Ina definitely sees him as kind of like her goal in terms of being like, here's this like older, cool, weird person that I can look up to. Um, So, you know, as she spends more time with Seymour, like her and Rebecca's friendship starts kind of becoming less of a priority. And, you know, and every time you meet up, you can tell there's this tension because, you know, at this point, Rebecca is working at like a Starbucks type place. And again, she's sort of like she's dealing with the public and Mm -hmm. she's coming up with these sort of action items for them to like move into the apartment while Enid is sort of being cagey about it all. And she's, and she doesn't want to like plan and go to the store and figure out how to get the money to pay the deposit. Like she's just not interested. She gets the kind of jobs that she gets fired on the first day. Yeah, exactly. She like gets the movie theater job at like the, 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 uh, whatever the multiplex and she's like terrible at it she can't she cannot help telling people to their face that they're stupid have you ever worked in a movie theater i have actually i worked at my college movie theater but that does not count (gasps) it was not the not a multiplex no but you worked at one that's cool i never knew that but you know i think when it comes down to it you know they're kind of drifting apart and you know rebecca's basically like yo i just can't 
I don't have the luxury to sit around and make fun of people to their face anymore. Like I have to play it nice if I want to like exist in this world because right. that's how you, you you can't just like get fired from jobs because you tell people that their popcorn is disgusting. Right. And the most interesting part for me is that there is a point where Seymour does hear from the real lady in his personal ad and they kind of start dating. And yeah. I got to tell you. She's exactly the type of person that Enid really hates. She's like a blonde real estate agent, like mm-hmm. just an extrovert who buys Seymour bad jeans. <laughs> she buys him mom jeans. God, that moment for me was like, oh, my God. Yes, the guy that walks in wearing the new bad jeans. And his response, like his reaction is just like, well, what do I know about clothes? And it's like, oh, man. Oh, no. I know. It's like, wow, this is all very grim for everybody involved. <laughs> um, but I think that this is at this moment that Enid is really starting to feel abandoned by like all these old reliables in her life who truly get her. And, you know, that feeling of being an outsider or like a freak or something. And and when you finally find your people who understand you in this way, like it's very powerful. And the thing about it is that I just feel like Rebecca is definitely like, I cannot be this master level misanthrope. I just can't yeah. do it anymore. And it's, and, and even Seymour is saying, yeah, I mean, at a certain point in order for me to get what I want, which is that I want a relationship or I want love. I have to wear the bad jeans. Like I have to do it. Yeah. They're both people who are willing to, they don't see it as a compromise. They see it as an evolution of who they need to be to be in the world. Yeah. And Enid does not (laughs) at all. And, you know, ultimately this movie takes just a really interesting turn with Enid and Seymour, which basically starts with this like remedial art class that she has to take to graduate. And it's, oh my God, it's taught by this like kind of whacked out Cali style art teacher named Roberta, who is played by Ileana Douglas. Oh, I love her. She's my favorite character in this movie. (laughs) I swear to God. Well, besides, you know, the guy outside of the convenience store we'll talk about in just a second. But she's my favorite character in the movie. And it's like, she's like, got this personal video art that she shows the class and it's just like a doll being thrown into like a toilet and it's and she's just saying, mirror, father, mirror. It's fucking so funny to me. Um, And I have to say this, like Ileana works for TCM sometimes. And so I remember when I first met her, I literally like walked up to her with like the biggest eyes. And I said, I am obsessed with your character in Ghost World. Like, (laughs) and she just kind of looked at me and laughed and she thanked me or whatever. But it was that thing where I was like, you don't even understand how long I've been waiting to talk to you about this. This character. Oh my God. And she's like, I worked on that movie for three days. What do you you want from me? You're crazy woman. The wig was hot. No, she was very nice about it. But but I felt like a freak. She's a fantastic actress. Oh, she's the best. The best. Um, but yeah, so she's taking this art class and, you know, she's very talented, of course. I mean, she's obviously like she's and she's got great taste. So it's that thing where you're like, oh, my God, she's she's awesome. And of course, everybody else in the class are like these like you know, kind of weird kids. And they all kind of have this sort of like lame view of what like problematic or confrontational art is because that's like Roberta's whole fascination. It was like provocative art and like making a statement and blah, 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 blah. So one night Seymour shows Enid this incredibly racist, horrible sign that was made by the company that he works for that, you know, was made in the early part of the 20th century 
you know, and it was basically like, it's like a horrible image. And Enid asks to borrow it and brings it to the class as her kind of like confrontational art. Right. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it gets shown in a gallery And from that point on, it sets off this whole chain of events, you know, where things start happening for Enid and Seymour and Rebecca. And it just sort of changes the nature of Enid and Seymour's relationship, which I'm not going to spoil because just I feel like a lot of people have seen this movie and it won't be a spoiler, but also maybe people haven't. So I won't I won't do that. Well, and also this is a point where Enid is this is to me almost a um it's like a, a point of time for her where there was a crossroads that was presented and she could have gone down one way or she could have gone the other. And she chose the path of kind of doubling down on who she is and doubling down on that kind of, you know, sort of needly assholeish sort of like I'm right about things sort of personality. And it bit her in the ass. Yeah. And, and that's exactly, I think, the point for me that is interesting in this movie because I know that that Enid and Seymour's friendship is obviously a big part of this movie, but the one that she has with Rebecca is the one that affected me the most, right? Definitely. Because she is doubling down, right? And Rebecca isn't. Rebecca's like, no, we like we can't be this anymore. Like, I have to evolve. And, you know, who cannot relate to that situation where like one person wants everything to stay the same. And the other person is like, I got to, I got to grow. I got to evolve. And, you know, and that's a common theme in these female friendship movies. Obviously it certainly was the last time we did this theme, but I think here with, with Rebecca and Edith, like, especially in what they share, just that like really bitter contempt for people with essentially people that have bad taste when it comes down to it. Right. Um, And just the idea that the movie is just constantly giving you these like perfect examples of what they mean. Right. Like it really just knocks me over. It really solidifies like who they are to each other because they're this um, they're sort of this intelligent about what they don't like. Um, Yeah. And it isn't just this broad like, oh, my God, we hate losers. And like, you know, we hate the popular kids. No, they literally hate like everybody. There are so many characters that come into this movie that are fucking hilarious to me. Like there's first of all, the guy with the piano scarf that's like always scamming the free coffee for the trivia. (laughs) You worked in a coffee shop. Did you guys have trivia? Hell no. I'm like, get your coffee and keep it moving, buddy. I worked at a coffee shop. I've worked at several coffee shops, but I used to work at a coffee shop in a mall. And there were people who would like hang out in the mall every day. Yeah. And they'd come over and like hang out at the coffee shop. And I'm just like, you got to (laughs) go. Like, you got to keep it moving. There aren't any chairs here for a fucking reason, dude. Go. Dude, I worked in coffee very briefly right after college maybe like three or four months i worked at a caribou coffee and we had a fucking trivia question that changed every day we offered 10 cents off which i was like this is insulting it's not even worth it i worked at a gloria jeans when i worked in the mall and gloria jeans don't have time for it they're like (laughs) how about you buy our coffee we'll be nice to you while you're here but then you got to go (laughs) she ain't got time for no trivia gloria jeans is not about trivia they're like, hi, have our cookies, have our have our snacks, have our coffee. Peace. 
Yeah, there. I don't think I could have handled the trivia question every day. Yeah, and this and this is the thing too about like the Eden and Rebecca sort of conversation when this guy like Eden is like, man, that guy rules. He's so weird and like he's like a, <laughs> he's fucking weird. And Rebecca's like, you can't work a job like this. Like, do you, you exactly. see people like this every day that are just like? And he comes he comes in with a laptop. Like he he looks at the question, comes in with a laptop, looks it up. And yes. answers like he's fully scamming the system. Yes. And you cannot say anything to him because he's a customer. Yeah. He's shamelessly getting a free coffee every day um, by cheating, essentially right <laughs> to look it up. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so it's that thing. And like, oh, my God. I, like besides him and besides Blues Hammer, which. Oh, do not get me started. OK, I every I know it's coming. Literally every time I see the movie, but the minute they're like, you ready for some real down home Delta blues? And that guy just starts singing the like song. He sings a song about picking cotton. He looks like Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. And he's singing a song about picking cotton. I scream like every time I know it's coming, but I'm just like, I'm going to scream at Blues Hammer because they're so ridiculous. Something I thought about when I first saw the film and something that I still think about is what is this movie trying to say about race? Because I don't know. Like they've got this complicated poster from way back that Enid is bringing into present date as a controversial piece of art. Mm -hmm. They've got Blues Hammer singing about, you know, Delta Blues. And they're just like, again, could not look more preppy. And it's possibly not trying to say anything about race, but it is whether it likes it or not. And so it's kind of interesting to me that... um, Every time I watch it, you know, because I've seen it several times and every time I watch it, I'm like, what are they trying to say here? Because I still don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because the Steve Buscemi character, the only reason why he's at the Blues Hammer show is because an actual black blues artist is playing. He's opening for Blues Hammer. And there's right. a moment where Steve Buscemi's like, this is fucking insane. Like, why is this happening? Like, and this so entire, insulting. <laughs> this entire bar is watching sports. Why this guy is performing like, you know, and, and it's that moment where, yeah, I think that it's more about I mean, in that moment, it's obviously about his reverence for black music and for right. his appreciation for it. And then it just gets like completely whitewashed by these like, you know, this fucking blues hammer band that takes the thing that he loves. That's very pure and original and like bastardizes it for like the bar sports bar people. Right. Right. And and they're like, oh, they're real blues. <laughs> you know, and you're oh. just like, oh, God. When that woman sits down next to Seymour and is like, oh, you like blues? You're going to love Blues Hammer. They're real blues. And he's just like, I am in hell. Yeah. And he and Enid connect on that point. Like, he definitely is the older version of, he is the, the, the specter of what Enid could become. Because he is absolutely like i hate everything i hate everyone in this bar i now remember why i never go out like this is some bullshit to have to deal with these people yeah exactly and i just think as they're both kind of collectors of old things right old things are a lot of times from a different time right old things are from a different time where things were not Right. And I think that was kind of her point when she wanted to make her big artistic statement, which is that was like, oh, Mm -hmm. guess like, you know, this is like confrontational because we don't, you know, racism is more an inside job and it's not so much like out in the open anymore, you know, but even that felt a little not really thought out very well. 
you know? No, because it's still that very strange thing, which, again, I've I've recognized in this recent viewing. It's still that very strange thing of someone who doesn't even have a concept of fully what happened and how it impacts our world, wanting to take a snippet of it and use it for their own benefit. So it's like as a young white woman, she's able to take this photo and say it's controversial and it's about this. And it's, you know, I'm using it for for my benefit to showcase not only my thought process as an artist, but to show you a part of the world that I think is fucked up that we haven't left behind. And it's like, okay, but in your regular life, Enid, you know, like, what are you doing about combating racism, you know, decolonizing your fucking shit? Like, it's it's that. It's like, I don't know that this is, I don't think this is meant to be, like a, again, a big film about race. But I think it is making all of these different commentaries about it, whether it likes it or not. And that's one of them, which is like, you know, how, how Enid is using this to her own benefit without fully understanding what she's talking about. Yeah, to me, I felt like her doing this seemed to be kind of a symptom of just being a young person that just wants to be provocative, but not really understanding why or like not. Yes. She's not really interrogating it enough. And I unfortunately, I can understand that. Like when I was a yeah, young same. person, I would, you know, stomp around in combat boots and be like, I fucking hate the government. But I'm like, do I? I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm just saying. Right. Loud things because I want to appear to be a contrarian or, you know, a shitster or, you know, I'm just doing the things that I understood as being transgressive or weird right. or whatever. But then, you know, if you actually sat there and thought about what you're saying, you wouldn't be able to formulate a fucking opinion. Like if anybody took me to task on why I hate the government when I was right. like 17, I'd be like, uh, because <laughs> Karl Marx, I don't know. I have a book. I haven't cracked it yet, you know, or like whatever, you know, completely. So, yeah, that to me is kind of like what I what I saw her as doing in that moment. Yeah, but no, it's very true. And it's and it's still provocative. It's still a provocative character for that reason that it's like there's even years later, there's so many ways that you could pick up on these beats of like, this is what it's like when you feel stuck. And when you feel like you have something to say and you either don't have an outlet for it or you don't know how to say it and you're trying to kind of rectify your future with your past. And it's a lot. It's a lot that it's going through in this film. Yeah, I, I agree. And like, you know, a lot of this is about just sort of like she just feels so misunderstood by everybody. And right. when, and you can tell she like lashes out at people who, who don't get her. Like when she goes to the fucking zine store and those like super acerbic, like punk rock dudes that work at the zine store are like making mm -hmm. fun of her for dressing like a, Cindy Lauper or whatever. He's like, what is yeah. this Cindy Lauper? And she's like, no, this is an original 1977 punk look. And they're like, uh, <sighs> this is lame. Like she feels so betrayed by them yeah. because she's like oh like here are my city people here are my like you know cool punk rock guys and they like are making fun of me and yeah so there's that moment where she just feels misunderstood and honestly like that's the whole thing with her and rebecca is that rebecca is the one person that gets her and now she's starting not to get her and right. enid is kind of acting out about it and i think that's why she kind of gravitates towards seymour because she's like well at least he's around um to kind of understand what i'm doing not even her dad bob balaban can help and he's so nice i know but i gotta tell you i was like wow that is a giant jar of jelly and i don't know why i'm disgusted <laughs> by that but i just am 
Just the texture, just the gloop sound. Yeah, this is the gloopiness, the gloopiness of jelly in a jar. <laughs> also, I would be remiss if I did not mention that dude outside of the gas station. And he's like fucking doing nunchucks in the parking lot and shit. Like, <laughs> what I love about that character is that he absolutely reminds me of every boy I grew up with, but he just got taller and didn't grow in any other way. <laughs> I love that character because you're like, you have been this hyper since you were four years old. Yeah. He is a metalhead who stayed a metalhead and he was just a loudmouth, <laughs> beef jerky eating, nunchuck guy. He, he hangs out at the convenience store all day. <laughs> There's this point where Brad Renfro is like, I work here and he's here more than me. <laughs> like Josh is like, I don't get it. <laughs> he's also seeing his future and he does not like it at all. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Every Everyone in this film is suffering from some kind of ennui about where the fuck they are. Like what? And the funny thing is, is that it was filmed in LA and there was, I mean, and I guess maybe now, cause I live there, you know, it's that thing where I'm like, Oh, I totally know. Like, the vibe of this place. I mean, it was basically yeah. like before, before I ever lived there, like I, I didn't know where they were at. I guess I was like, is this Ohio? I don't know. But now that I'm like, Oh yeah, I see. This is like those parts of LA. <laughs> yep. I can see this guy in the parking lot for sure. <laughs> and it's, it's great. It's great. It's a great film. I love the fact that they live in apartments that it's not like they live in houses because yeah. that's another side of LA that you don't really get to see. Yep. Or at least at the time, you weren't seeing that very often in these kinds of films. But they're just like two high school kids living in apartments with their families, trying to get by, trying to think about who they want to be and how they can be it. And it's just, it's great. It holds up. Yeah. And 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 when it comes down to it, I think about myself, you know, as you always do, because you're always like, are you an Enid or a Rebecca? I mean, I know I just said I'm a Seymour, but honestly, I've been <laughs> both. Like I've been an Enid where... You know, for whatever reason, like a friend of mine wanted to move on. And I was like, oh, come on. But we're just still having fun here. And then I've been a Rebecca where I've been like, yeah. all right, this is no longer serving me and I have to split, you know. Exactly. But um, yeah, I, I just love this movie so much. And honestly, like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Truly. Thank you for, for bringing this film back into rotation. Yes. And thank you for your film. I'm so happy that we did the recurring theme, Changing Female Friendships. It's just always a good one. We're going to do it again, people. Don't worry. Maybe even this year. What if the whole rest of the year for our first year of this podcast, we just do themes we've already done? Like, we're back. We're doing it again. I will say this. We do have merch. If you are interested in having our faces on your person um or if you want a mug to drink coffee out of um if An you enamel want, pin yeah <laughs> pin stickers the whole thing it's over at the exactly right shop which is at exactlyrightmedia.com. and if you want even more from us we've got a whole bunch of bonus episodes up at stitcher premium uh you can use the promo code saw for a free month that's right in fact I think we have a bonus episode coming up yeah. this week, which is me talking about a movie. <laughs> and only you talking about a movie. <laughs> I'm scared. It feels like a dissertation. I'll be there with you. I'll, I will talk. But this is like, this is a movie that you need 
to talk about. I'm going to be defending my dissertation in front of Professor Henderson and I'm freaking the fuck out. What am I going to do? And I'm going to play Miley Cyrus videos the whole time. (laughs) It's going to be great. I love it. Well, aside from the bonus episode we have coming up this week, what is our next week's movies? All right. So the movies for next week are Stand By Me from 1986 and Deliverance from 1972. Ooh, baby, what's the theme? <laughs> it's going to be a hot one. I, t- I got to tell you. Well, we're going to see you there. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye. Bye. Mark one. Mark one. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 